Het Chat, yes. Cheryl Shaw and Dr. Paul McCarthy with us today. And Cheryl will be talking about keeping your pets safe in your yard. And we're also going to take a look with Dr. Paul about poisoning from the sago palm. We're heading into the world of pets with Pet Chat. And Dr. Paul joining us, good afternoon to you. Thanks, Jane. Good afternoon. We'll take a look at poisoning a little bit later on. And Cheryl Shaw here as well. Yes. Hello to you. Hello, Jane. Lovely to be here. Now tell us all about pets. We need to keep them safe, don't we? We certainly do. And at this time of the year, it's springtime, a lot of us are going out into the garden to re-establish what we've neglected over the autumn and winter time. But you are talking about the plants here. That's right, <laughs> in the garden, those plants. But what happens when we've got pets? We need to be really vigilant about when we start applying fertilisers and mulches and things like this. Often we don't sort of think about our pet. They're in the yard with us, but once that fertiliser comes out, we need to make sure that we're either keeping a close eye on the dog or cat if it's out with us, or preferably just putting it away while you attend to these gardening issues. So how long is it going to need to be on its own, away from pets? Before okay, the pets it's going to depend, go Jane, on what you're using. So if we're talking about fertilisers, a lot of the fertilisers will actually say, you know, water it in and don't allow your pets on it for a certain number of hours. But some fertilisers that are high, say, in nitrogen can actually burn the dog's paws. So we need to make sure it is well watered in. And again, we've got water restrictions, which is going to create a bit of a, another problem. So making sure that you're applying your fertilisers when you can actually get it to seep into your um, soil or, or make sure it's dissolved away. Now there's a lot of products that we use um, in the gardens uh, apart from our fertilisers but some fertilisers actually contain herbicides, they contain pesticides and even fungicides. Now these are designed to um, to kill the pests that are in the garden so we certainly want to make sure that our dogs and cats don't have access to this. So making sure that once you've finished applying your fertilisers that you put it away safely so that your animals can't get to it. So it's very important that they don't ingest it. Sometimes particularly dogs love to roll in some of the manures that are there. They love to smell like the manure. Paul, why do they do that? Yeah, I I don't have an answer for that one. I think it's a personal preference, maybe. (laughs) I don't know on that one. But it is is quite funny, though, that, you know, you have this lovely clean dog and then you put down the dynamic lifter and the dog goes and rolls Particularly after a bath. It's Uh, generally always after the bath. It seems that way. But the problem with dynamic lifter is because it's usually, and it's not just that one, there's a lot of pelleted um, um, chook poos, really, they are, out there. But dogs love not just to roll in them, but to eat them as yeah. well. Now, this is quite a concern to us. Yeah, we've had two this week of, of dogs who have ingested blood and bone, oh. um, and it just goes straight through them, sadly. it's a It can be very dangerous. So um, you get severe dehydration and vomiting associated with it. Um, the diarrhoea is, is quite profuse. So be really careful about those things. Yeah, they, because... They smell great to dogs. They do. So there's the bone meal, there's the, the feather meal, there's all these different meals. But Paul, some of those can actually cause compaction too, can't they? Yeah, mainly because of the volume ingested. Right. Yeah, if they ingest enough of it, you can get a um, a structural uh, an obstructive lesion in the in the bowel because it all compounds together and forms a hardened mass. Mm, yuck! Yeah, how horrible. Now mulches—that's another thing we often put down different mulches. So we'll sometimes use wood chips or coloured chips, sometimes rocks, so- stones, all of those sort of gravels and things. But there's one in particular. Obviously, if they're eating any of those, they can also cause obstructions. 
but the cocoa mulch is a real no-go mm. one. And that's because it contains um, theobrimine. Yep. And what does that do, Paul? So it's what's in chocolate. Yeah, yum. Yeah, so it, it, it damages the liver. So And, and interestingly, people don't often realise that. Um, and so it's, I'm glad you brought it up because we do often see these guys presenting as a chocolate-poisoning dog and they say there's been no access, but often it's due to because the fact that they've had access to these mulches. Yeah, and it is this time of the year that we, you know, we're doing lots of work in our garden, particularly me. I love getting out there in this time of the year. It's not too hot. It's just lovely. But just be so mindful of what you're using and, again, snail baits. I mean, know you've uh, talked. Yep about this one before before yeah. but snail baits are really really dangerous and and both cats and dogs are attracted to them yeah to, to make them attracted to the pest they are often cereal based and so therefore very attractive to dogs in particular but cats also yeah, I think from a gardener's point of view, you know, the beer trap is a good one. <laughs> Much better idea. <laughs> or the, the, what is it, cucumber and aluminium, that goes well together. But look, seriously, you need to make sure that you are looking after your pets when you're doing your gardening, making sure that anything that you use, any products, um, that you safely put them away so your dog doesn't have access to them because we certainly don't want to see any pets, you know, sort of succumbing to um, to fertilisers or, or, or other or nasties. Pet chat. Four nine two one six two one six for your question. If you've got a question you'd like to ask about your pet, and Paul, Dr. Paul McCarthy, we are thinking about more poisoning in the garden. Often yeah, actually, feeding them very nicely from Cheryl this morning, her previous talk <laughs> no, about gardening. I don't think feeding's the right word. Well, no, like, well, that's that's what ends up happening. Yes, so. Um, when you are doing your grooming and your trimming of your hedges and you're making your garden look beautiful, be very conscious of what you are removing from the garden and, and laying down for your dogs and cats to be around are often much more toxic when they've been cut than when they're actually just growing. So lots of dogs avoid plants while they're growing, but if there's a nice cut stick in the garden, they'll often take that on. And we often see these sorts of things, especially when you're dealing with plants like oleander or some of the more toxic plants, just be careful that you are putting them straight into a, um, a bin or a bag so that the dogs aren't getting access to that. Um, and my main reason for bringing this up today is a, is a personal one, and I'm doing an, um, a talk today based on a, a wonderful dog we have in hospital, Archie, at the moment. Now, sadly, Archie's a, a nine-month-old bulldog who um, on last week um, during the, the guarding of their by his owners, um, had access to what we call a sago palm, which is a member of the Cycad family. Now, now that, that's the same as a macrosamia, we think, do I we? think so, yeah. yeah. So um, they have, they're, they're quite spiky normally, and, yes. and often dogs have access, they're difficulty getting access to them because of their spiky nature. But, of course, when these things are removed from the garden, they're more easily accessible. Um, the seeds and the roots are particularly palatable to dogs, um, and sadly have an incredibly high concentration of toxin. Mm -hmm. um, so poor Archie has gone into liver failure from intoxication of the sago palm, um, and so much of the liver has become affected from the toxin that he now has a bleeding disorder as well. A very common plant in our local area, made more popular by the fact that it does very well in dry conditions. Um, Sydney and the Hunter have an enormous number of cycads. Um, they're sort of flavour of the month. If you look in a home, house and garden magazine, they're, they're the new things in the pot or the garden. Um, it's just be really stressed that these 
plants are heavily, heavily poisonous. And, so and it, only a very small amount yeah. need to be consumed to make a difference. Just a small amount. Mm. Yeah. And so certainly, um, as we said, the seeds are, are the most potent, but the root also. So um, dogs chewing on the roots of these things will have equally amount, uh, equal amount of getting the, the toxin into their system. The liver just shuts down. The cells are all damaged by the toxin. And, and to survive, they actually have to almost regrow their livers because the, the, the liver is so badly destroyed. Um, and a large percentage of these dogs go on to die. There is no antidote. Um, so predominantly it's about if you recognise that your dog has been chewing on a cycad, have them taken to their vet immediately, vomit up as much as they possibly can, and then try and use some activated charcoal, as you've spoken before on the show, to try and remove the capacity for that toxin to be absorbed. Um, it, it can be recoverable if the treatment is acted on quickly, um, and hopefully Archie will pull through for this one as well. But it is a very common thing we're seeing now because of the popularity of this plant so it's less tr- it's, it's tricky for dogs to get to it while it's growing but very easy to get to if, you, if you're doing your, your grooming um, and lots of these um, plants as i said are, are only really accessible to dogs due to human intervention we've, we've cut the plant and the dogs have had access to them because they do grow in the bush quite naturally, these cycads, don't they? That's right, yeah. Um, and, and because the native species don't, well, they know better than to eat these guys, they're, they're much safer. But our domestic dogs aren't quite so bright sometimes, and so we do see these things. And look, we've seen much more commonly these types of poisonings in the last maybe few years as we bring more of those sort of um, cycad family into our gardens. The What we call the architectural plants are having a real boom, um, and sadly lots of those are toxic. Uh, and of course, while we're talking about wildlife, what about the fertilizers and the um, uh, and those things, the the snail baits and things that we put on our garden? How does the native wildlife look? Cope interestingly, with that? we see um, a lot of possums brought in that have eaten rat sack. Um, people often put rat sack in their roofs um, to keep the rat, rat population down. And we see a lot of ringnecks in particular, but also the brush-tailed possums are brought in um, quite unwell and they're pale. And, and the most common cause for that is that they're also suffering the bleeding disorders that rat sack bring on. So we do see that quite commonly in the possum. Um, and in actual fact, as a routine now, any possum that comes into us, we give vitamin K2 um, to try and at least get that started. Lots of cases, sadly, we don't have much success, but um, we do see that. So be very conscious if you are trying to keep a natural garden. Um, look at your alternatives to using those types of poisons for rats and rodents. Um, I hate to say we go for more than mechanical type ones, the catch and release maybe, or the traps, um, rather than an actual ingested toxin. For Pet Chat, we definitely need to have a Cat Stevens song. On 2NURFM, Pet Chat. Simon, you've got a question about your cat, have you? Yeah, well, following on from a Cat Stevens song, um, (laughs) when my pussycat goes to have a drink, he always puddles in the water first. And I'm wondering whether it might be short-sightedness or whatever, but he always puddles his foot in the water before he has a drink. Makes a heck of a mess of the floor. Yeah, look, lots of cats play with their water. I think that's a really common scenario. So I don't think the side of your cat's affected at all. Um, I think that's just cats. Cats just do weird things sometimes. <laughs> and I think often uh, my cat does the same. Um, we had a clinic cat at my last practice who, if you turn the tap on, she'd come up and she'd actually bat her paw through the running water. So I think this is just not a short-sighted cat, but just a cat who's found a game that she likes. Um, 
Yeah, so I, I, I would just put a, an absorbent mat beneath your water bowl because I don't right. think you're going to fix it. Yeah, it's like <laughs> into the shower after you've had a shower and paddle around in the water in the bottom of the shower too. Yeah, that's very common actually for cats. And, and I think that one that they do believe is because when we wash ourselves, we remove some of the body salts that we have in our skin, that actually the mm-hmm. saline nature of that water actually attra- attracts cats as well. Um, that's a very common scenario, showers, cats drinking from showers after people have used them, yeah. And interestingly, okay. it'll often encourage cats to urinate there as well. So some cats will actually prefer to urinate in the drain after a shower has, has been run as well. Well, you've never done that, but... Um, thank goodness. Thank you, for, thank you for your insight. No problems. Thank you, Simon, for your call. And you can be part of our conversation as well. But cats generally, we think of them as not liking water, do we, Paul? Yeah, and I, I think I don't know quite know where that's come from because lots of cats in the wild, the, the tiger swims quite happily, as does the panther and the jaguar. So um, I think that that's sort of... Uh, we don't often see cats actually um, swimming because they often bathe themselves. They're exceptionally good groomers and, and can sometimes come unstuck from that, which is why we see fur balls in that spring and autumn period because they're really over-grooming that undercoat out. Um, but lots of cats really enjoy water. Um, and so I think that that's often a, a myth that, that cats are scared or, or frightened of water. I must say I hadn't realised that cats like paddling in their drinking water. Yeah, yeah, lots of cats do. Cats are quite inquisitive creatures and they often create their own games. Mm. Um, so toys that you think uh, you, you buy your cat, the cat will often make its toy out of anything that you've got in the in the house. Our cat particularly loves those metal strings you get on um, like paper, uh, bread containers, little plastic things that you flick them around the house. Um, we have to always be careful about the metal ones that he doesn't actually ingest them. But yeah, cats make games out of all sorts of things. They're, they're incredible things to watch cats. The dogs, I, I think, don't have quite the same curiosity or capacity to make a game out of nothing. But, but cats can create games from yeah, literally nothing. So are they good with uh, toys that you give them to play with? So it depends on the type of cat you have. So there are lots of different... Um, personalities for cats and so there are the cats who like to to um obviously stalk so using the feathers on a bit of string type ones the ones who are on like a fishing line you drag them there are some cats who really like that that stalking behavior um there are the ones that reflect light so cat you'll often see on i'm sure everyone's in the youtube ones where there's a person with their laser pointer at the wall and the cat's jumping around the room at them so it's about engaging that pounce behavior but be very conscious of picking the right game for your cat in that that pouncing behavior can become so such a drive for the cat that you become the prey as well and so it can bring out aggressive nature in cats so so pick a game that you know your cat will enjoy but doesn't end with you taking a, a bite to the finger because you can some cats require the the um the chase and the catch and if they can't catch the prey then they may redirect that prey catching behavior to whatever's closest and that can sometimes be you um, do dogs don't do the same thing, do they? So, so dogs will do a stalking behaviour. You'll often see dogs get down, um, but they don't tend to have the same drive as, as we do see with the, with the cat. Certainly the dog's not going to jump out of the room as you walk down the hall and tap you, not but normal. the cat does. <laughs> cats love that, don't yes, they? Yes, it's such a great <laughs> game. Well, more on cats now. Jennifer's rung in from Waratah, and your cat's uh, doing what you don't want, I believe, Jennifer. No, not my cat. My cat is golden. (laughs) (laughs) No bias. (laughs) No, totally no. I've got a friend who's got two cats. She's got a scratching post 
which they totally resist, but yep. they prefer her lounge to scratch. Yeah. Mm. This is a, a really common there scenario. Was you could spray on the upholstery that would offend them. Yeah, so there are things called get off my garden um, and there's some other sort of phrases a bit more racy. Um, but these sorts of things often will try and deter cats. Interestingly, cats often don't like the smell of citrus. So often citrus-scented sprays needn't actually be sort of um, the, the sort of uh, aversive ones, but the, one, the ones that just smell like citrus can be enough as well. Um, well I generally orange tell... peels onto the upholstery. Yeah, look, <laughs> you're on the right track. Um, Often, this sounds not so good for the lounge as far as its aesthetic appeal, but um, they don't like reflective surfaces sometimes. So if you wrap the legs or some of the the, the lounge chair with alfoil, often the reflective nature of that material will actually balk cats from going near the lounge. Um, (laughs) So so that can help as well. Um, Or you can do what we did in our household, where you actually just get a lining agent made for your lounge so that the liner goes over the lounge and the lounge is then free from the cat scratching and you take it off when guests come to the house. It's a really okay. difficult... Once once the behaviour has started, it's a very difficult one to break um, yes. because what the scratching has also become part of is my daily routine. So I, I, I do my my um, eating here, or I do my sort of checking the perimeter here and I mark and scratch my, my, uh, my territory here. So what once about, it's commenced, um, it'll often, often be a very difficult one to reverse. What about sprinkling catnip on the scratching post? Or is there anything else that would appeal to them? Yeah, uh, my understanding is that it, that hasn't been a particularly successful thing. Sometimes <laughs> actually scratching the post with something first so it looks like it's already been pre-scratched can make a difference. Particularly yeah. in cats who are using the scratching as a scent or a marking behaviour. If they've already seen that it's been scratched, and it could just be a matter of getting a screwdriver and scratching it up a little bit so that it looks like it's been used, that can sometimes break the or make that more palatable to the cat to use. There are different substrates for scratching posts as well. So if if, they could, if the owner could look for a similar substrate to what the lounge is already made up of would be helpful. Um, and sometimes you can even get that, those actually. fabrics made. You can get the fabrics that the lounge is made from and make your own scratching post. It's often a matter of putting it near where they are already scratching and then slowly moving it away each day a little bit further away from the lounge so that they follow the post rather than stick around the lounge. Um, but particularly if there's been if there's two cats in the household, it'll often have been a part of that. I'm going to make this mine, um, and there's a competition to keep that. So that can also be part of that process as well. Is that one so of the cats what, may have suggested the lounge is theirs? Sorry. A scratching post for each of them? Yeah, certainly. You always, always try and have um, each animal have its own individual area. So each cat should have its own litter. You know, so for cat litter trays, you do two for each cat, one spare. The same goes for scratching posts. You always try and have, have, have at least two and, and even a spare so that you can try and engage that in case there is ownership of a post where the other cat feels it can't scratch there. I've got to scratch over here because it's already been taken and claimed. And, Paul, the positioning okay. of those posts is quite important as Very well. Very much so. Yeah, sometimes yeah. people put them in areas that is away from everything so Correct. the cat's it's not interested set, yeah. to go there. What we well, think that's where of cat... one of these is in yeah. the garage. Okay, so really it's got to be... Um, you need to place it very close initially to where the cat's already scratching um, to try and engage that in the, the engage that post in the scratching routine um, because often where we want a scratching post to look to be for our aesthetically pleased lounge room is often not where the cat wants to scratch. Particularly if a cat is scratching for 
um, territory. It, it needs to have that be a visible um, event. And so having that somewhere where they can't be seen doing it or, or have the actual post seen by anybody, it just won't work. Yeah, often they like their posts near a window so they can be watching out and, and that can really encourage them to go to that space to use their, their scratching post to sit on it and then scratch. So near well, a window... A little a room pre- with a view then. That's it, yeah, a room, room with, with a view. view. Yep. God loves them. I reckon <laughs> she's got no hope. <laughs> well, all the very best with you Thank and you your friends, much. cats. Bye-bye. Um, thanks for your call. Jennifer, and um, well, yes, who knew that cats need to be seen doing things? Yeah, it's, it's often, particularly in multi-cat households, so lots of cats actually aren't all that happy about living in a multi-cat household, and it takes um, uh, a particular individual personality to live in a social group for cats. They often are social, but you can also get cats who just want to be on their own, and and sometimes scratching, particularly of, of furniture, can often be a way of getting attention particularly from the owners, because often owners will respond obviously very um, uh, quickly to a cat scratching something, so they're getting that attention that they require. And it's often about redirecting that to a more appropriate substrate than the lounge, so you're still meeting the cat's needs but keeping your furniture safe. So this I, I want to be alone type feeling that some cats have, will that make a difference if they're if the two cats are both male or one male, one female? No. So... Um, Certainly there can be intercat aggression based on sex, and, and certainly that's the reason to neuter all multi-cat households. So um, nothing upsets a household more than a male marking territory, both for the females and any other males in the cat. So critically, if you're going to have a multi-cat household, they must all be desexed. Um, but certainly um, siblings are also a challenge. So siblings kept together are much more likely to compete, much more likely to develop aggressive tendencies towards each other and also to redirect that aggression to other people in the house. So very important. Um, and also... Um, hand-reared kittens. So kittens who have not learnt normal social behaviour from a litter or from their parents um, commonly develop behavioural abnormalities and scratching of furniture can be one of those displays of anxiety that these cats may manifest. So if it's if, it, if you're seeing other anxiety um, traits in combination with the scratching, have a chat to your vet about there are medications you can use for anxiety in cats. On to a new RFM, this is Pet Chat. And we have with us Dr. Paul and Cheryl Shaw and Rose has rung in from Bonnells Bay. Rose, your question's about a dog. Yes, I was watching a vet show the other night and a dog uh, found some ice cream on the beach and it had sand in it and it made it really sick the sand and nearly died it got caught in the intestine Mm. and I never thought sand would be that dangerous for dogs. Yeah, so so sand sadly almost acts as a bit of a um, well, it moves through the bowel very very slowly, um, and it creates weight in the bowel. So when you get a lot of sand impacted in a particular area, it damages the intestinal lining, um, and disappointingly, often the intestine will rupture due to the sand being so uh, so present in the bowel. Um, oh. And so sand is a really dangerous thing for for dogs, and 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 those. 
often sort of see those dogs at the off-lead off park at the beach who are really sort of gulping large bouts of it. And I try and sort of catch the owner and say, try and discourage that behaviour because we, in, my own, in our own practice, have sadly seen a sand impaction that has led to a death of a dog. Um, it's, it's not unusual, actually, interestingly enough, but it is often a very big problem. Even the sand's abrasiveness can cause severe diarrhoea and vomiting. So if you do have a dog that likes that as a bit of a game, try and displace that behaviour as quickly as you can. I like that oh, expression, displace yeah. that behaviour. Mm, yeah, encourage a different game. So if, it, if it's a, if a dog that likes to sort of grab at chasing things, create a grab chasing game. So you can try and implement that rather than the dog chewing the sand. That's a good topic. Thank you very much, Rose. And, uh, Ro- and Lynn has rung in from Cameron Park. And we're back on cats again, Lynn. Yes, we are. Um, look, I have three Himalayan Persians. They're male, they're boondy sexed, and they sleep together, eat together, drink together, whatever. But one in particular, for no idea why I can think, um, has to wash himself. Then he has to wash the other two. So do you know, is there any science in that? Or yeah. is he just extra clean? <laughs> no, no, no. So what he's actually doing is called an appeasement behaviour. So so that cat actually is a little bit less self-confident as the other two cats and a way of trying to in, in make sure that the other cats treat him well and treat him in a friendly way is um, he's trying to groom them as a way of appeasing them, their, um, appeasing them, making them feel very good, making them realise he's no threat to them, so there's no reason to show any aggression towards them because he's grooming them, he's appeasing them, he's making them feel that they are special to him and therefore that he's no threat to them. It's a really common thing in lots of species, actually, that grooming or licking behaviour is a bonding technique. And so often the youngest, even or the least confident, is the one who does most of the grooming in a social group. Um, and if the other animals in the pack, and in this case in your, in your group of cats, allow the behaviour, it, it reinforces that bond, that they are all OK with each other. There is no threat, there are no risks, there are no challenges, and it, it keeps the pack in a nice, stable environment. Thank you very much. Well, they all are inside in an outdoor area and they sleep like a pancake stack on each other. Yeah, terrific. They eat and they change bowls and they eat and, yeah, they, we've never had a hiss or a hissy fit. So I just get, I've got three good male Himalayans and they're all happy with each other. Yeah, look, you did the right thing. You neutered them, which makes a very large difference. Are they different ages, Lynn? They are. I've got one that's 15 in November, one that's 11 in December, and one that's 11 in January. Yeah, so often having a, a difference in age makes a big difference for cats as well. Um, often having too many around the same age bracket brings out competition. But, but that behaviour you're seeing, that licking behaviour we see in dogs, we see in other species of animals as well, it's a very common bonding technique. Um, so don't discourage it. That, that, no, no, that, I, don't. I don't. I don't. I've got one that wants to headbutt me face every morning, the other little, like, one that wants to lick me, and the black face one, the uh, seal point, he wants a bit of cuddle every night. And yeah, then so even that... The- that licking is part of them appeasing you as well. So you've become yeah. part of their social group, and so it's all part of the keeping that bond together. Oh, obviously I've got a good bonded household, Well, You do indeed. <laughs> Thank you so much. No problems, Lynn. Thanks, Lynn, for your call. What about grooming with horses and things? Sometimes yeah, similar. they yeah. groom each other Correct. at the same time, which looks very cute. Yeah, <laughs> and so it's, again, it's, it's a way of making uh, an individual realise you aren't a threat. 
So um, we often anthropomorphize, but it's, it's a love response, and, and, and perhaps it is. But, but dominantly, it's a way of social harmony. Um, grooming is commonly used, even in human cultures, um, grooming is a, a, a tool used. So brushing of people's hair, um, uh, cleaning of people in a, in a social group, a stranger coming in is often cleaned by the, by, by the tribe. Um, these sorts of behaviours are often a way of saying, I'm no threat to you, let's be friends. What about dogs if they perhaps are on sitting on your lap or whatever? Don't they sometimes think they're top dog? No, so you can throw that one away, Jane. Oh, good. There, there are no top dogs. You, that's a, we used to think that dogs were wolves and therefore followed a wolf pack hierarchy with an alpha and a, a gamma and a delta. That's since been debunked. These are social creatures who form a bit of a social commune rather than a pack as such. So you can be part of their pack. Correct. The way Lynn is with her cats. Yeah, yeah. So if you like your dog sitting in your lap, then allow that to happen. It's not going to cause any aggression or any changes associated with that. And you often see birds with that kind of grooming behaviour too. Yep, same deal. Yeah. It's about saying, I'm no threat. Let's be friends. Mm. Mm. Well, still a couple of minutes to go before Pet Chat closes for today. Sure. So I guess, again, on that grooming situation is the, the only thing that, that can sometimes be a symptom of is if you have a pet that is over-grooming the other pet or over-grooming you, what that dog is trying to tell you is that I am anxious. I feel that I have to keep reinforcing this bond. I, I'm, I'm not feeling very safe. Um, and that anxiety can then transfer to other anxious behaviours such as separation anxiety, um, fear aggression, different different sort of worsening of that underlying um, anxiety trait. So if you do see that, particularly a young puppy, um, look at using some uh, ways of making that dog feel safer in its environment because it is telling you um, from an, you know, from a very early stage that I am not feeling all that safe. Because puppies can often do that, have that kind of behaviour. Yeah, there, they... there should be some, but if it becomes the fact that all I do is want to lick, lick, lick you, yeah. that's a dog telling you that I don't feel very safe and I'm looking for that reassurance that I am. And in some circumstances, the right thing is to reassure. In some circumstances, the right thing is to ignore. So we don't praise a behaviour we wish to extinguish. But certainly have a chat to your vet if you are seeing those sorts of behaviours manifested because it could be that there is anxiety present there and, and we can work on that one in lots of different ways. So I suppose really the thing you, you don't do with a puppy in particular is say stop doing that and Correct. reject yeah. them. If, you, if it is worrying you to the point that you're finding it annoying, turn your back block your view so that your facial features and your body is turned away from the dog, which is what another dog does to a dog if the behaviour is, is unwanted. So use a language that they understand. No and don't and things just create a, an aggressive tendency between you and it can sever the bond between owner and dog. Uh, we won't get onto dogs jumping up, will we? <laughs> Turn your back young. on them too. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All that so, makes it fairly yeah, easy. It, it, the easiest thing to do is ignore a behaviour you don't want. Okay, yeah. so just don't look at them. And no, they... block. Turn your turn your turn your shoulders. Put turn your arms and across across your chest. Um, if they continue to jump, jump. Take a step forward, so that they're really letting you're letting them know this social group doesn't allow that behaviour. Well, you've certainly um, awakened a new horizon for me. I like the idea <laughs> of animals being a social pack and including us in them as well. 
And that's Pet Chat for today. Thank you, Dr. Paul McCarthy and Pleasure. Cheryl Shaw. And Pet Chat will be back next Wednesday after the midday news on 2NURFM. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com.